I still have the problem that everybody's, you know, like, if you sit in the middle, it's a lot easier for me to see everybody at the same time. Uh, it's very hard. I don't really want to be, you know, I'll get dizzy. Okay. Now we're amplified. Okay, so it looks as if we're a little smaller than we were last week, so um, maybe people weren't getting what they were expecting in terms of Buddhist history. I think I'm going to give the assignment for next week first because I would like to move on and um, start working with the topic that I've sort of titled, Should Theravadans Be Afraid of Nagarjuna? Nagarjuna, as you probably know, is considered to be the foremost Mahayana Buddhist philosopher, particularly well known for his teachings about emptiness. And um, for someone who practices in the Mahayana tradition, I have a fairly radical thesis, which is that there's nothing particularly Mahayana about what Nagarjuna has to say, in my opinion, which I will be explaining next week. Uh, teachings on emptiness, as I read it, are um, germane or important or central to all Buddhist traditions, not just Mahayana. And I have here a book that if you have never looked at it, you have it or take a look at it or recommend it. It's called uh, Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree, the Buddha's teaching on voidness. And it's by Buddhadasa. So uh, he comes with very highly regarded Theravada credentials, a contemporary, died a few years ago, but a contemporary Thai teacher who had a, a very, very well-known monastery in southern Thailand, <clears throat> which I actually visited in 1991. Um, and the subtitle of this book is The, teacher, the Buddha's Teaching on Voidness. Uh, voidness is his translation for sunyata. I can't say it in Pali. I'm so used to the Sanskrit sunyata, sunyata in Pali. I don't think voidness is a very good translation for sunyata. You may have to put up with my Sanskrit. I'm sorry. Um, I don't think it's a very good translation for sunyata. But other than that, um, I found this book very, very interesting. And I went through and looked at some of my underlinings just tonight. And uh, I think if you, if you have, have you ever read that one, Mark? Mm -hmm. yeah. What do you think of it? Oh, it's great. You know, uh, Santi Carlo, the translator, is the former monk who lives in southeastern, yeah, or southwestern Wisconsin. Yeah, he lives not that far from me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I met Santi Carlo at his monastery in oh, Thailand. Oh, so I've known I've known Santi Carlo for for a long time. That was very humorous, to my mind, because the discipline was so strict. He wanted to talk to me, but the only way he he was a monk and I'm a woman, of course. The only way he could talk to me was we had to sit on the on the balcony on a porch outside with a chaperone who watched us from ten feet away, which I found extremely quaint. Um, and you know, I always laugh about it. It was like, oh wow, this is this is really something. So what I said I wanted to do tonight was um, get back to this article, Buddhist history for Buddhist practitioners, and actually work through the five points in the article. Because last week got to be kind of reform as we as we moved along. Um, so if you have that article with you, pull it out. 
And um, I want to move right away to page the second page of the article. And I think one of my fundamental theses in this work that I've been doing in accurate and non-sectarian Buddhist history is that there really is nothing that traditionally inclined faithful Buddhists should be afraid of in this historical research. There's nothing, there's nothing threatening to the Buddhist tradition in the work I'm doing. There's, there's nothing at all that's threatening. And I think that's perhaps the most important point that I, that I want to underscore. Uh, it's in the bottom of the first column on that second page. There is no radical disjunction between traditional Buddhism and the results of modern scholarship. Because that's often a thing that people get into, that somehow if you use modern scholarship, it's, it's, um, it's, it's anti-tradition, or you have to give up some of your traditional views to, um, to follow modern scholarship. And then I want to, in the top of the next column, I say I want to delineate five aspects of historical consciousness that are crucial to understanding what modern historical studies contribute to an accurate non-sectarian history of Buddhism. And I also argue that each of these five can deepen one's dharmic understanding. Now, this is a tactic that I've often used when we come into what many people think of as a new or a modern interpretation of something, is to say that, no, if you understand the tradition at a, at a very deep level, there is no particular conflict between the two points of view. And I want to go through that with each of these five um, theses or five uh, principles that uh, I think are important for historical consciousness, bringing historical consciousness into Buddhist, into Buddhist practice. Because Buddhist history has been in there for a hundred years, but this kind of thing is not often brought into a practice context of Buddhism. And I actually think that this kind of scholarship really can improve our practice and our understanding of Dharma, that it's not merely academic. Uh, I could very strongly argue that it is not merely academic that it actually improves our understanding and practice of Buddhism. So the first principle, I think, is quite straightforward, that we need to use all the relevant sources. All relevant sources must be considered, which means all Buddhist sources from all Buddhist lineages. Typically, at a Buddhist institution, when Buddhist history is taught, only the history of that particular lineage or that particular denomination of Buddhism is taught. You don't get, um, you know, you don't get an overall understanding of Buddhist history. Um, if you're in a Mahayana perspective, the early period is glossed over pretty fast. If you're in a Theravada perspective, it suddenly stops with at about 400 years after the death of Buddha, maybe goes into Buddhadasa, but you don't get any Mahayana history. If you're studying in a Tibetan context, you never hear anything about Chinese Buddhism. And if you're studying in a Chinese context, you don't hear so much about Indian Buddhism. And so it goes. Um, so 
what I what I what I argued here, which I think is completely accurate, is that no living form of Buddhism has in its own records all of the relevant historical sources. You cannot construct an accurate non-sectarian history of Buddhism using only the resources found in any one specific lineage. So in that sense, um, we need to branch out from our own lineage histories and study the lineage histories of other forms of Buddhism to get a more overall picture of Buddhism. So um, as I said here at the bottom of the second page, at the end of the second column, um, working within a sectarian context, one can derive only a partial history of Buddhism, a version of Buddhist history that most scholars would regard as deficient. Any, any discussion of that point? It's, I think, very straightforward. And how do I correlate this with Buddhist practice? Uh, I correlated it with right speech. That for, for right speech, we, we can't refuse to look at certain sources just because they're unfamiliar or not part of our lineage history. That right speech uh, involves gathering all the information that we need to be able to get an accurate view of Buddhist history. Uh, right speech is telling the truth, which in involves including all relevant information. So I don't know if I want to argue the opposite, that you, you can't engage in right speech unless you actually study Buddhist history. I don't know that I'd want to make that argument. But certainly, um, including all the relevant sources in our study can be correlated with right speech. And then, as I said, the connection with right view may be less direct. Fundamentally, if we lack curiosity and are unwilling to look afresh without preconceptions or fixed ideological opinions, it is impossible to develop right view. Uh, as I understand Buddhism, so much of it depends on developing an open, curious state of mind. And it has very little to do with um, having a lot of opinions or having a lot of beliefs that one holds to in a very rigid way. Um, I, I just find that as something that's foundational in all forms of Buddhism. Um, and the Zen practitioners have some very good phrases for that. The mind of beginner's mind, uh, the mind of only don't know. Um, I think it was in one of Joseph Goldstein's books that I first read the comment that what would teachers most like of their students? What would be the greatest benefit to students' practice um, if people would only have fewer opinions? Or if they, would be, if they would have less firm belief in the opinions they do hold? So here I see at the beginning a very, you know, just complete harmony between modern historical scholarship and the deep values of Buddhism. Secondly, moving on, um, the second axiom for those who work with historical consciousness concerns change, or what Buddhists call impermanence. It just seems, you know, so obvious to me that um, Buddhism has changed and will change, that um, 
change is inevitable. The difficulty here, I have this underlined in my own text, religions often present themselves as offering protection from change and from the vicissitudes that are characteristic of life. And they fiercely resist any internal change, such as new wordings of familiar liturgies, new translations of authoritative texts, or development of new movements and practices. You know, I'm sure that most Buddhist organizations, you could come up with examples of resistance to internal change. Um, I've been through it with changes in wordings of familiar liturgies from very uh, androcentric uh, terminology where everything was men, mankind, to uh, people, humanity, language. That's something that I can't understand why people resist it, but they do. Uh, have you had any, any gone through any of that in this community of changes that have been introduced here that people didn't, there was like, we, we want, we don't want change, we want things to stay the same. Has there been any? Well, I think the, the one thing that seems that we try to train ourselves when we're reading the suttas is just to change the pronouns to one or both or people, just so that uh, it doesn't sound. And then whenever the sutta says, you know, bhikkhus, we should translate that to practitioners to make it more neutral. Mm -hmm. I don't and know if there's resistance to that. Include lay practitioners. Yeah, exactly. And there's been resistance to that? That's amazing. What are the grounds for the resistance? Well, I think, the, I mean, just, I don't know how much resistance there is, uh, except that people feel, you know, in some circles, people feel that you should just read what's their understanding that it was written in a particular cultural setting, and we have to do the translation in our own mind. Yeah. There's a real conservative element in Theravada, especially. If you can justify this change, maybe you can justify the changes. Oh, yes. If you can justify this change, then you can justify other changes. And the next, you'll be throwing out the Four Noble Truths. <laughs> sort of the way that logic goes. Um, Don't you think that there's something to sort of play the opposite card? Don't you think there's some validity to to that is that you need some prajna at that point, knowing what to accept and what to reject. And um, the reason for accepting pronoun changes is that um, it's very, it can be very alienating and distancing to women. Like, is this religion really about me and for me or not? Um, and the principle of say what you mean and mean what you say well, if you mean people, then say people. It's not very hard. And if you mean men, I guess I should leave. Because <laughs> no, 
I'd never, I, here I've done it because I've been invited to, but the example I often use is that when it says men on the, on the door of a little room, it doesn't usually include women. <laughs> this is one of the clearest examples that that language doesn't work. But I think the, the deeper point is that change always occurs. Things can't stay the same and don't stay the same. And they haven't stayed the same, um, you know, even, even Theravada Buddhism is considered to be the most conservative form of Buddhism, but it hasn't stayed the same. I mean, for one of the big changes is that during the Buddhist time, there was no quarrel about ordaining bhikkhunis. And today, there's a huge quarrel in Theravada Buddhism about ordaining bhikkhunis. So that's something that's changed in Theravada Buddhism over the centuries. I know there's, I can't participate in it because I don't know the text well enough, but I know there's a lot of discussion now that um, perhaps um, we need to, or people need to really look at the question of, of Buddha Gosha's interpretation of the, of the suttas and the suttas themselves. I'm sure you're very much familiar with that. And that's a big issue, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, especially in, in, in terms of meditation instruction, especially in, like, yeah, just how how people understand uh, the progress of practice. So um, that's an interesting, significant example. If Buddha Gosha, it, Buddha Gosha's interpretations of the suttas, which has been so important in Theravada Buddhism, if that actually is an interpretation of the suttas and not what the suttas seem to say directly. That's a very big and a very important change. And then looking at the uh, suttas again and going back to more to a sutta-based method of practice, that would be another big change. So the point, the deeper, deeper point is that you can't stop change. Change is going to happen. This kind of setting we have here was not a traditional Buddhist setting. It's a change. To have lay people doing serious practice is a change. To have men and women practicing together is a change. And those are changes that I don't think any of you want to uh, give up on. So um, the deeper point, well, let's see what I say here. Religions often present themselves as offering protection from change. Um, which I think is one of the great mistakes religions get into, that they're going to promise people this is something secure, it will, it will never change. You can, you can um, count on this never to change, so it's secure. You can put your anchor here and be, you never have to worry about change. I remember as a kid that was something that was always, I was brought up Lutheran and that was something that was always during the era of Vatican II when Catholicism was changing. It was such a bad thing that a religion would change. You don't want to belong to a religion that is this way one day and then that way the next day, do you? Uh, historical consciousness, on the other hand, regards change as inevitable and does not evaluate that reality either positively or negatively. Given the easily observable fact that living religions are always changing, it is evident that historical consciousness is more cogent and realistic on this point. 
I always used to tell my students at the university, many of whom were quite conservative or fundamentalist Christians, very much opposed to any change in religion, that if you want to practice a religion that will never change, find one that is dead, that no one practices anymore, you know, out of the books or out of archaeology, and then you start practicing that, that religion, and it won't change on you because it doesn't have any practitioners anymore. But if people are practicing a religion because times change the religion, the religions are always changing. Now, as I say in this article, um, well, there's something before we get to the correlation with, um, with Buddha Dharma itself. Um, I want to read this in I think this is a very important paragraph here, sort of on page, page 85, page 3, I think, um, in the page that looks like this, in the first column, right in the middle. Um, Buddhist resistance to the reality of historical change commonly emerges as the firm conviction that whatever form of Buddhism we practice is the best version of teachings is the best version of teachings of the historical Buddha. Uh, this is the basis for Mahayana and Vajrayana claims that they were actually taught by, historical, by the historical Buddha during his lifetime, and for Theravada rejection of these forms of Buddhism because they were not. Now, um, as a, speaking as someone who practices in a Mahayana tradition, I'm completely convinced the historical Buddha did not teach the things that are uh, really distinguish Mahayana Buddhism from Theravada Buddhism. And I consider the chief of those to be uh, the whole teachings on the Bodhisattva path and taking the Bodhisattva vow, which I have been corrected. I now have been taught that there is a minor strand in Theravada Buddhism of people also taking the Bodhisattva vow, but it's not a major, you know, it's not a major practice in Theravada Buddhism. I consider that to be the major huge difference, glaring difference between Mahayana and Theravada Buddhism. Um, as uh, Bhikkhu, yeah, Bhikkhu Bodhi, I think, wrote a very good article in Tricycle a few years ago in which he pointed out that the historical Buddha, as I've taught my students at Lotus Garden many times, the historical Buddha never taught his students to take the Bodhisattva vow. He always told them, go find a tree, sit, get enlightened, don't waste time get enlightened now. And um, why that changed, I have. I think I've given that lecture here. I won't be doing it in this course. I have some theories about why the perspective changed from, you know, find a tree, sit, get enlightened now, to you should take the Bodhisattva vow. And don't worry about enlightenment now, probably in part because people stopped having any confidence that it was possible to attain enlightenment now in this, these times, in this body and life. But in terms of talking about fundamentalism, right here is a point where fundamentalism really comes up in Buddhism. Because Mahayana Buddhists have been, I mean, Mahayana Buddhists are really, who don't have much historical knowledge anyway, really get scared when somebody teaches them, no, the historical Buddha did not teach Mahayana Buddhism. He did not teach the Bodhisattva path. Uh, the Heart Sutra is not a historical document. That didn't happen during the lifetime of the historical Buddha. They get 
are sure have narrated these stories before, they get really nervous and upset. And um, they got very mad at me, too. <laughs> but they get, they get very nervous and upset because they have previously been taught by people who don't know any Buddhist history that the Buddha, during his lifetime, went up to Rajgriha with his disciples, and the Heart Sutra was taught. And uh, all of the uh, older disciples, um, I mean, get get this. This is what is often what I've heard taught many times. The the older disciples who were arhats who thought they knew everything, when they heard the Heart Sutra, they were so shocked they had heart attacks. Get it? <laughs> so it's the Heart Attack Sutra. Whereupon the Buddha realized people weren't ready for these teachings yet, and um, hid the Mahayana teachings among the Nagas for four or five hundred years while the human Sangha would mature and come to understand these teachings. Now what's interesting about this story is the time frame is exactly the same for a historian and for a Vajrayana Buddhist using, um, using the story rather than history. They both agree that there was a period of about 400 years when Mahayana teachings were not taught in the human realm. And then they started to be taught in the human realm. The big difference is that, um, and, you know, most Tibetans literally believe this, probably many Chinese Mahayanists do as well, that those teachings were taught by the Buddha during his lifetime and hidden in this underwater region with the Nagas for four or five hundred years. They, they definitely, literally believe it. Um, but the interesting thing is the time frame is exactly the same in both cases. So that's a Mahayana fundamentalism that they want, you know, unless the, these teachings were taught by the historical Buddha, they can't be valid. I mean, how could, how could, how could mirror people have come up with new teachings improved upon the teachings of the Buddha. Scandalous, impossible. Therefore, they must have been taught by the historical Buddha. That's the Mahayana fundamentalism. Um, the Theravada fundamentalism is to say that because the Mahayana sutras are not Buddha Vachana, and I, as a Mahayanist, again, I'm completely convinced that the Mahayana sutras are not the literal words of the historical Buddha. And believe me, it's fun teaching that at a Mahayana center. <laughs> but I've done it many times now. Uh, they're not the words of the historical Buddha. But things change. That doesn't mean they're without value. That doesn't mean that they don't need to be read and studied and taken seriously. The Theravada fundamentalism is to just dismiss Every, everything that came after a certain point and say, well, we don't study that because it's not the words of the Buddha. We focus on the pure, true, authentic teachings only. And, um, you know, I, I think there's some, some problem with that as well. Now, that's a fairly big assertion, so somebody might want to say something about that. Yes. I don't know if this is right, exactly on point, but um, isn't there isn't there an issue about the ability of language to actually communicate? Oh yes. The Buddha alluded to. Oh yes, and of course. The Buddha himself, at least traditionally, is, is, 
is thought to have hesitated to try to, to, to teach, teach at all. Because part of the thing, because how do you put this into words? Well, he, the reason... The so reason, I guess yeah. what, I, what I'm wondering is, isn't there an aspect here of, you know, uh, okay, we, we, we have these mantras that we think the Buddhas, these are actually the Buddhist words or something mm-hmm. close to it, but is that necessarily the final word? Well, as I said last week, because we haven't done that much textual analysis of the Pali Suttas, it's very hard to pick out, even in the Pali Suttas, what's probably the, stands a halfway decent chance. So that's another fundamentalism, to say that if we have the actual words of the founder, then we can count on that. That's that's really another fundamentalism, that we got to, get the actual words of the founder and then throw out all critical intelligence and just go with whatever the founder said or is purported to have said. Um, you know, um, maybe maybe there was, there, times changed, maybe there was some something that came along later that was actually worth saying. Is it pointing to some kind of your Well, I think that the distinction between absolute and relative truth is is certainly an important one, but um, anything that's in words in the long run is relative truth. So, so both the the Pali suttas and the Sanskrit Mahayana sutras are relative truth because they're verbal teachings. Now, there are some very, if you've ever read Mahayana sutras, there's some really bizarre things in Mahayana sutras, some very weird stories. If there's ever any interest, I'd be willing to teach a course on Mahayana sutras here because I've studied quite a few of them now in a fair amount of depth. So that's just if you're ever interested. Um, But anyway, this is, this is, when we're talking about fundamentalism and what is fundamentalism, I think it's very important to point out that both Mahayana and Theravada Buddhism are easily subject to a form of fundamentalism regarding this issue of when, where, and how, and why Mahayana emerged. Um, it's a different fundamentalism. It's a different uh, thesis, but it's the same kind of thing of wanting to have uh, the founder only as our source, as our authority. That's very common in religions. You know, a lot of Christianity is about this is actually what Jesus taught or what the popes taught, what what was, you know, the pope standing in for Jesus. But to get this, you know, it's the founder and only the founder's words are valuable. the whole process, the whole thesis that only the founder's words, if we could ever get to them, would have any value, I think is very flawed. And then the kinds of arguments about what are the founder's words between Mahayanas and Theravadans, yes? That, uh, in many religions, they take this idea that everything started in perfection and it's been declined ever since. It's, I guess that's what you're saying. With that idea that it's always trying yeah, to prevent that decline, that all change is seen as automatically judged as being, is being bad. Is bad. Yeah. Um, so to move on here, 
I think this is a very important part of this article. A Buddhist, it's just following from what I was just reading, Buddhists thoroughly informed by historical consciousness would not use a Buddhist, Buddhist sect's age as the basis for accepting or rejecting it. Historical consciousness frees us from the common prejudices that whatever is newer is better or whatever is older is better. And many, many people have a prejudice one way or the other. If it's new, it's better. If it's old, it's better. Different schools are just different, and the date of inception does not make one better or worse, higher or lower. If, with historical consciousness intact, Buddhists would not have to resort to ahistorical arguments that attempt to make their form of Buddhism older than it is. That's contra the Mahayanists. Nor would they feel, to, feel compelled to regard newer forms of Buddhism as invalid or irrelevant. And that's contra Theravadan perspectives. Knowledge of Buddhist history can go far to counteract Buddhist sectarianism, especially the mutual misunderstandings so prevalent among both Mahayana and Theravada Buddhists. An overarching Buddhist history would have to be the same for both, which I think is a very um, liberating kind of idea. And with such a history in place, each could come to understand how one came to deviate from the other without either the rancor of Mahayana supersessionism, including its use of the term Hinayana, which I absolutely oppose, or Theravadan dismissal of non-Theravada Buddhists. If change, impermanence, is as basic as the Buddha Dharma proclaims it to be, then one should expect that new movements such as Mahayana would develop from time to time. So the way that this gets correlated with Buddha Dharma is um, use the word impermanence instead of the word change. Impermanence, you know, can be considered the linchpin of all Buddhist teaching and our Refusal to accept impermanence is the cause of much of our suffering. So when you use the word impermanence, then suddenly, oh, that's basic Buddha Dharma. I've always been very amused by a religion that says impermanence is absolute bedrock. It's, it's the bottom line, but refuses to think that its forms could change, that, that it, there could be change in um, the way the Dharma is expressed in the institutional life of the tradition. Um, it doesn't make any sense to have as one of your foundation teachings that impermanence is so basic to everything and then say, but we can't have anything change in, in, our, in our religion. It doesn't make sense, does it? I've heard the Dalai Lama say um, that he's, even though we cherish the that there is can you speak up a little bit? That the Dalai Lama has, has said that even though we cherish um, the suttas, that they, like all things, are impermanent. And in some cases, if the science shows us that um, there are mistakes in the suttas, mm -hmm. that we need to let go of our allegiance to right. uh, certain suttas and um, embrace 
Yeah, that's it's very really remarkable. And, and he talked about it in terms of impermanence and our our clinging to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a statement I bring in very often to justify the kind of work I'm doing from uh, the universe in a single atom, which is a wonderful book. It's the Dalai Lama's essays on his appreciation of Western science and Western science and Buddha Dharma. Um, I don't know that we'll get that far tonight. The Dalai Lama has actually gone so far um, as to make a very similar statement about the Heart Sutra that I would think must drive um, a lot of Mahayana's while, but I'll read it to you. This is the Dalai Lama talking about the Heart Sutra. Uh, when we examine the Mahayana scriptures themselves, we find statements that seem problematic in various ways. For example, the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras state that they were taught by the Buddha at Vulture Peak in Rajagriha to a vast congregation of disciples. However, if you have visited the site in present-day Rajgir, it is obvious that it is impossible for more than a few people to fit onto the summit. So we have to understand the truth of these accounts at a different level a level beyond the ordinary one confined by conventional notions of space and time. Um, that, that for Mahayana Buddhists and for Tibetan Buddhists is a very, um, you know, it's a very radical statement. Um, and one that I'm sure, well, actually, one of the other teachers at Lotus Garden uh, expressed scorn for the Dalai Lama's statement that if science, if something in the sutras conflicts with science, science trumps the suttas. She thought that was, you know, giving in to modernity. Which is, these are very well-educated, intelligent people, good practitioners, but they have no academic training in Buddhist studies. And when you have no academic training in Buddhist studies and don't know Buddhism altogether, no matter how good a practitioner you are, you can, you can make some fairly funny conclusions. So uh, if the reality of impermanence applies to all phenomena, then it applies to Buddhism's forms, its institutions, practices, and verbal formulations of the Dharma. Um, the third point at the bottom of that page. Um, the third point is that accepting change as inevitable and normative brings the realization that diversity is also normative and inevitable. <clears throat> Not only do things change, but in a large geographically and socially varied religion such as that covered by Buddhism, they change in different ways and at different rates. The internal diversity of Buddhism is therefore to be expected. Though this point may seem obvious, it has profound implications. Religions, including Buddhism, have long suffered and caused suffering because of, the, of their illusion that if people would only behave and think correctly, we'd all practice the same religion. Simple observation of phenomena should convince us that religious diversity is here to stay 
and that our task is to learn how to live well with it. The only other option is perpetual sectarianism, the mutual aggression, hostility, and competitiveness that has long plagued religions. Religious diversity itself is not a problem, but sectarianism is. Now, even my teacher, who has you know, been so free and easy with me and letting me teach pretty radical things at her center, whenever I talk to her about the need for Buddhists to know more about other forms of Buddhism, she always says, but we're never going to agree anyway. And I always have to say, that's not the point. That's not why we need to know about other forms of Buddhism. We simply need to know, we simply need to become much more comfortable with the inevitability of diversity in religion. This has been one of the major themes of my life work. And right now I'm trying to finish a book on a Buddhist approach to religious diversity. The primary thesis of which is, to put it in a question, uh, excuse me, but what's the question? Isn't religious diversity normal? Why would we ever expect religions not to be different? Why would we ever expect forms of Buddhism not to be wildly different from one another, as wildly different as Japanese pure land Buddhism, which uh, is sort of uh, salvation by faith alone, has been very often compared to Lutheranism and its radical emphasis on it's impossible, it's egotistical to think you could become enlightened through your own practice. You need to have faith in Amitabha's, the power of Amitabha's vow. That's all you need. It's a pretty, you know, pretty radical form of Buddhism to, um, you know, to say Zen or any form of Buddhism that radically emphasizes sitting meditation. But what's the problem? Why wouldn't we expect diversity to be rampant, given how different people are? Is that a question? A question. What, if, what if somebody um, <coughs> would say, well, because the, this or that religion claims to, um, well, it claims certain truth claims. And um, if these truth claims amongst different religions or forms of particular religion are disjoint, then one is true and one is not, or some are true and some are not. What would you say to somebody who would ask you that? And that's why they have a problem with things being so diverse. Well, um, because at a verbal level, at the level of teachings, religions are very different from one another, but the teachings are all skillful means. I think this is one of the hardest points to get, that religious teachings, in terms of, of Buddhism, religious teachings are not in the realm of prajna. They're in the realm of upaya. Uh, I've got a whole paper on that, but religious teachings are a skillful means. They're a tool to get a certain job done to move a person along the spiritual path. And sometimes you need a hammer and sometimes you need a screwdriver, you know, when you're trying to do tasks. So um, the question would be to ask, are those teachings which are so different from one another having good effects on, their, on those who practice them? And if the teachings are producing people that are kinder and less violent, who are we to quarrel with the teachings? 
On the other hand, if people are, you know, gung ho, this is this is the true religion, but they're always uh, mad at other people and violent. I would say, you know, you needed you, you need to reevaluate your toolkit and maybe try a different tool. So verbal differences. People never agree. Verbal differences are inevitable. The question that I think is so serious is how to live with those different opinions. And one of the most important skills there is to learn to hold, go, going back to what would improve a student's practice the most, being less opinionated. Holding opinions, holding beliefs much more lightly. This is the case. This is how I see it. I've thought about this a lot. This is how I see it. But probably in five years, I'll, I'll think about these issues a little bit differently than I do today. Now, if everybody would only have that attitude about their ideologies, think what an improvement in American politics that would bring. You know, think about how painful the, the, you know, the extreme ideology that we're seeing today in American politics, where people just cannot even begin to fathom that um, that their opinions are, are opinions, not the truth. So prajna, you know, tr clear seeing is not. It's part of the point that that words are always at the level of relative truth, at least as I view it. That clear seeing is devoid of opinions. Um, so. Uh, I think that to tr really, really get the point, and I know this is a hard point to get because it goes against the way our culture parses these things out, but to realize that teachings are, are in the realm of upaya, not in the realm of prajna, is very, very helpful understanding. Yes? So as a, a follow-up, you could say that. Could I have a refresher on my tea? Thanks. The logical flaw is that the person saying what I said before, or what you're dissecting right now, um, is that they're expecting the religious truth claims to be the same as scientific truth claims in, in as far as how their they're religion is determined. Yeah, yeah I, I, I don't probably... Because that's what they yeah, expect now, yeah. is what it brings. Yeah, I probably wouldn't use those words myself, so I think probably you have a point. Um, what I would go fall back on is that mere words can never capture the truth. And so um, don't put so much stock in your verbal formulae. Because, uh, you know, I see much of, much of the problem of religious diversity in the world at large and intra-Buddhist diversity is people really getting very, uh, people becoming very attached to a particular verbal formulation a particular set of teachings, and often not even understanding that set of teachings very well. Yes? Um, I, I was wondering a little bit earlier if there is within the um, Theravada tradition a group of folks who say, yes, we may have some of the earliest teachings of the Buddha, but we'll accept ones that come later on that are in line with that. And you know. But, but it sounds like from what you're saying, that's not the question, that, that the question should be, 
the teachings that come later, they enhance the practice? Well, I think the question should be, because I'm not, I don't, we don't study all forms of Buddhism to somehow merge them all together into a happy medium. We study other forms of Buddhism to be informed, to be less prejudiced about them, to understand them accurately in their own terms, and perhaps to learn something valuable for our own practice. But our own practice is improved by the compassion that comes with understanding people who see the world very differently, accurately from their own side. That's how the practice is really improved. I'm going to say in a few minutes how this correlates, how accepting diversity as normal correlates with Buddhist tradition is that it, it enhances compassion greatly to have that kind of understanding of people that have a very different view of the world than we do. Um, and this is something that you know my teacher has said, and this is a very good way of putting it, the compassion to let things be as they are and not have to improve them or criticize them that, or to feel superior to them. Now, uh, part of the reason why you know there hasn't been much interchange between Mahayanists and Theravadans for a very long time is geographical. They just weren't in communication with each other. And you know, I often talk about this as one of the great wonders and great benefits of the world we live in today. That you know, here in the city of Minneapolis, we can we can have contact with all virtually all forms of Buddhism that have ever been practiced on the planet. But do we? No, we usually don't. Um, now that now that. Um, you know, there is possible to have this kind of communication again. Some Theravadins have started to study certain aspects of Mahayana thought much more seriously. I mean, I think that um, Bhikkhu, uh, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa's book, he says, you know, um, people always, people criticized him because he's, they say Mahayana, uh, emptiness, that's Mahayana teaching. We shouldn't go there. But he just basically says that's not the case. And uh, Kalupahana has actually translated uh, Nagarjuna's work and uh, has put forth the thesis that he sees Nagarjuna as fundamentally um, talking about one particular Pali Sutta, which I will, I will talk about that all next week. Um, and certainly, you know, when this summer at Lotus Garden, at my retreat there, my teacher taught the four foundations of mindfulness using the Pali text, which for a Tibetan is a radical move because those, the, most of the Pali text didn't make it to Tibet. And the Mahasatipatthana Sutta is one that didn't make it to Tibet. So the, the Tibetan canon only has a very kind of truncated version of the four foundations of mindfulness in it. And she's now having her students practice four foundations of mindfulness. So, you know, it is changing. And there are, there are cases like that where you really do discover there are missing pieces in your tradition. Um, you know, and another way that I think is very valuable is so many people are so mystified by Vajrayana Buddhism. But do people ever take a course in Vajrayana Buddhism to find out, you know, do we really take all those deities literally, what, what are all those deities about, what is all that ritual, why, 
you know, the people, they just kind of say it's, it's mystifying. It doesn't even really seem like Buddhism to me. Many people say that about Vajrayana Buddhism. It doesn't really even seem like Buddhism. <laughs> Have you ever heard that said? Okay. Anything else? Yes. Um, could you talk a little bit more about Vajna and Vinaya? Are the terms not familiar to you? Slightly familiar. Okay, prajna. Pana is the Pali, right? I'm sorry, but I'm just much more used to Sanskrit. Pana is um, usually can be translated in a number of ways, but it's discriminating awareness wisdom. And it is a wisdom that knows one of its key traits is to know what to accept and what to reject. But it's, it's a... It's not any specific body of knowledge. It's the ability to make good decisions. It's not a body of knowledge. One does not gain, it's often just translated as wisdom. Um, though there are two words for wisdom in Buddhism that mean somewhat different things. Um, but it's, it's not wisdom as knowledge. It's wisdom as an ability. And that's really, really important. So it has no specific content. Uh, right view is often defined as being in, a, it, things, being in accord with things as they are. And upaya um, term is less used in the Theravada tradition. Is that true? It's the same. It's the same in Pali and in Sanskrit. Upaya is usually translated as skillful means. Uh, in the Mahayana system, it's, this, it's the seventh paramita. People think there are only ten, uh, six paramitas in the Mahayana system, but that's not correct. There are f really ten, as in the Theravada tradition, though they're not the same lists. Um, upaya is uh, skillful means which is knowing, prajna is, is in a, a knowing ability. Upaya is very practical. It's knowing what to do in specific circumstances. The example that is most often given for what upaya is, is even in the Pali suttas, the Buddha taught differently to different audiences. So he geared his teachings to what he knew the audience could handle and understand and not be shocked by. And one of the key examples is that men, he didn't often teach the same teachings for monastics and for lay people. Lay people often didn't hear the steeper teachings. He sort of reserved those by and large for monastics. So um, that's why finding the right meditation technique for a specific student, that's upaya. It's knowing the specifics of the situation and knowing what will apply to that specific situation. Um, should a person, and that's by the way what all these complicated Vajrayana things are about. They're, they're meditation techniques that are supposed to be a skillful means uh, to more quickly get the student moving along on the path. Does that help? Okay, so diversity, point number three, diversity is uh, normal. 
at the heart of sectarianism, I think this is really important, at the heart of sectarianism is the tendency to regard difference as deficiency. That is so common in the Western world that if things are different, one of them has to be better and the other one has to be worse. We're so prone to that assumption that if things are different from one another, one of them is better and the other one is worse. And, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's just pervasive in the way our minds work when we work in the Western mindset. For many Buddhists, including most Mahayanists, several deeply entrenched habits of speech must be relinquished if we are to move beyond sectarianism. Um, almost all Mahayana Buddhists regard themselves as practicing a superior form of Buddhism, which they contrast to the so-called Hinayana, or smaller, inferior vehicle. Um, this is something as a Again, speaking as a Mahayanist, this, I think, is the worst flaw of Mahayana Buddhism. It's uh, love of the word Hinayana. It's just in love with the word Hinayana. And um, Tibetans are, are really bad at it. Um, at Lotus Garden, a woman who studied Theravada for about 20 years has, has started coming to our retreats. And she's... she's she talks to me quite a bit. She's just horrified. She can't understand why the vocabulary is so common about Hinayanists and Arhats and Pratyeka Buddhas as lower forms, just plain lower forms. And um, she talked to our teacher about it one night. And the teacher you know, basically says, are people still talking that way? That's what Rita's always telling me. But you know, she's come, my teacher has now come to the habit of saying, you have to understand what we mean by Hinayana. What we mean by Hinayana is a beginning stage of the path. It's, it's that I'm the Hinayanist, not someone else is the Hinayanist. But I basically tell her, look, you can't, you can't revive, you can't resurrect a word that's been so misused. It's like taking the N-word and trying to put it into polite discourse again. You can't do it because it's been used too oppressively for too long. And um, that's one of the things that I don't think we'll ever quite, you know. I mean, she's so used to that language. It's just so common in her vocabulary that when she, when she remembers, she says other things. But when she's just talking sort of automatically, it's this Hinayana stuff just keeps coming out. And um, I think it's going to take quite a bit to get that linguistic habit reformed. Now, at the uh, bottom of the first column, and I believe it's page four, Knowing how to let things be different without needing to rank them is a highly valuable skill, given that religious diversity, both external and internal, is inevitable. Letting things be without obsessing to change or improve them could be seen as a highly developed form of compassion, one of the most central of all Buddhist virtues. 
accurate non-sectarian histories of Buddhism could go far to explain how Buddhism became so diverse. How, I mean, how did it become so diverse? And also provides tools for regarding that diversity as a virtue, not a problem. This is kind of one of my slogans, diversity as a virtue or a resource rather than a problem. Um, and teaching, again, teaching world religions at UW-Eau Claire, this was something that was that I always had to talk about a lot with students because they just couldn't, they just couldn't see that religious diversity wasn't a problem. It just, you know, it has to be a, because those people are going to go to hell if they don't know the truth. It just couldn't get to the point of regarding religious diversity as normal and not a problem. So the need for mutual understanding and respect in a religion that values friendliness and compassion as much as Buddhism does should be self-evident. Its connection with right speech should also be so obvious as not even to need explanation or comment. Um, how can we be disparaging other forms of Buddhism using terms like Hinayana and also be involved in right speech? So that's uh, the end of point three. Now on to point four. Um, the fourth connection, interconnection between traditional Buddhism and historical consciousness also involves change. Here the explanation is on explaining change, specifically to call upon the fundamental Buddhist, fundamental Buddhist tool of Pratitya Samutpada to explain the development of new lineages and movements rather than citing supernatural intervention into historical processes. So to use our, our notion of interdependence and in the 12 Nidanas to explain historical changes within Buddhism, never to apply uh, appeal to supernatural intervention into historical processes. So the Mahayana version of its origins is very much appealing to a supernatural intervention into history. The Buddha hid the teachings among the Nagas for 400 years. And then Nagarjuna get it. Nagarjuna went down to the realm of the Nagas and brought these scriptures back. That's, a, that's relying on a supernatural intervention into historical processes to explain change, which I think is utterly unnecessary when we have Pratitya Samutpada, what's this Pali, Paticha? Oh, it's, right. it's, it's very similar anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when we have you know, these incredible teachings on Pratitya Samutpada that explain how things change due to causes and conditions. Due to certain causes and conditions, Mahayana emerged at a certain point in Buddhist history. We can look for and probably find and identify those causes and conditions that led to the emergence of Mahayana. We can identify the causes and conditions that led to some Buddhists rejecting Mahayana scriptures and other Buddhists accepting them. It's all, you know, it's, it's, we don't need any supernatural uh, miracle stories in, uh, to explain any of these things. And, um, I, one of my biggest, I have a, in the paper I'm probably not going to get to, I have a long discussion of um, miracles and how much I dislike miracle stories. 
as proof of the truth of a religion or a sect within Buddhism. Um, one of the examples I cite that I went through last summer, there was a set of teachings on Chandrakirti. Chandrakirti is a 7th century Mahayana thinker who was a commentator on Nagarjuna. And he's very, very highly regarded. And so we were studying Chandrakirti's text. And the teacher would go through all of the logical proofs for the cogency of notions of emptiness. And then his clinching argument was, and Chandrakirti was able to milk a, draw milk from a painting of a cow. That was the argument that clinched it. It just, I would, I would sit there just, you know, almost steam coming out of my ears, as I say in this other paper, that if, if the arguments about emptiness weren't cogent on their own, the notion that somebody could milk a painted cow would never convince me that uh, the ideas about emptiness are true. And um, if I were required to actually believe that he milked the painted cow, that would drive me away from teachings on emptiness. But I said, fortunately, teachings on emptiness is so cogent that uh, neither, neither alternative applies. Now, um, you know, there, there are enough miracle stories in the Pali Suttas, too. Not, not so many, but there are miracle stories in the Pali Suttas. Um, Mahayana sutras are just absolutely rife with miracle stories. Um, just, I mean, they just, it's really a science fiction universe in there, in the, in the Mahayana sutras. Um, so I don't understand why stories about painting, milking painted cows, how they could ever be used to prove anything. Students at the university used to, they, they they thought they had me. They thought they had an infallible argument. You can tell that Christianity is the true religion because Jesus perf could perform miracles. And I just shrugged my shoulders and said, you know, miracle stories are a dime a dozen found in every religious tradition. So if Christian miracle stories prove that Christianity is true, then Buddhist miracle stories prove Buddhism is true, and Muslim miracle stories prove that Islam is true, and you know, it, it just doesn't come down to anything. But the Christian ones are the only ones that really happen. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think there are still believers whose time has passed? Yes. Well, let me, let me, um, I want to, yeah, I'll talk about that because that's an important point. Um, there was something else I wanted to say before I moved on. Well, I've lost it now. But yes, in the paper, the, the other paper I'm working on, on the, sort of an extension of these topics, I do say that miracle stories, miracle stories could, could still um, have meaning, but not as literal happenings as symbolic happenings. So that's the, the strategy I use to work with traditional miracle stories. Oh, I know what I wanted to say. Thich Nhat Hanh's wonderful biography of the Buddha, Old Path, White Clouds, tells the story without a single miracle in it. And if you've never read that book, I very, very highly recommend it. It's a very big book. It's very easy to read. And you just, it's like a novel. You just don't want to put it down once you start. Have you read it? I haven't. Oh, we it, haven't. It's, 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 I mean, I had it on my shelf for many, many years, and I hadn't read it. 
And then I read it when I was starting to teach Buddhist history and needed to have, you know, more than my 10-minute lecture on the life of the Buddha that I did in my Intro to Buddhism course. But it's, um, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's so much fun. You can see Thich Nhat Hans, his own, you know, his biases come through very clearly in it. And it's just, um, you know, just great. You've been trying to get in for a long uh, time. Just on this one point of the miracles and stuff, it's interesting that you you just kind of come out and admit that a lot of people like to show up because they're not valuable to you. Or, I don't want to overstate your point, but anyway. I don't use miracle stories to prove the truth of Buddhism or any Buddhist teaching. I don't say the stories are without value. I don't think they can prove the truth of a teaching because they are stories, not history. Right. But I still think there's, I just, I wonder how you have this conversation with people who are uh, intimidated by what you're proposing. As you've said, a lot of people have reacted strongly. Because your premise is, is that, that like empirical facts, just saying that it's not empirically based doesn't mean that that story is not valuable. That's right. one of your premises of your article. Yeah. But at the same time, you're also kind of personally admitting that a lot of those stories you don't find valuable, which they find valuable. I can see how people find that threatening from you. That they're, mm -hmm. On the one hand, you're saying, I'm not telling you that your stories, your mirrors. I never tell people that their stories are not valuable. If they're valuable to them, they're valuable. What I do tell people is that they're stories, that it's very important to make a very clear distinction between story and history. History, modern history, is like science. It's based on, it's based on empirical knowledge as far as possible. A story doesn't matter if the story is empirically accurate or not. Novels aren't historically accurate, and yet they're very valuable. There's a lot you can learn from reading a novel. So that's one of the distinctions I try to get people to see. And I, what, in my other paper, one of the things I said was that this very sharp distinction between story and history that I insist upon is foreign to religious traditions. Traditional narratives, story and history slide into one another all the time. And um, people, for whatever reasons, didn't need to make such a sharp distinction. But once you've gone through the European Enlightenment with its total value on empiricism, and we live in that paradigm, there's no two ways about it, we live in that paradigm, then you need to distinguish between story and history. Um, so, you know, we try to do the, we try to explain to people. Um, no, you don't need to. See, this is the, pro the point that people often make, that if it's not literally true, then it's not true in any way, or it's not valuable. So therefore, what then happens is that at a certain point, most people you know, come to doubt certain miracle stories. And if they don't have an alternative way of understanding that story, then they lose their, uh, they lose their faith altogether. That, you know, and that happens to countless, countless, countless people. The student who left Lotus Garden left Lotus Garden because um, he, if Buddhist stories were no truer than Christian stories, he didn't want any part of it. And he wasn't able to hear the difference between the truth, the historical truth, and symbolic truth com communicated by a story. Remember last week I gave the Black Elk quote, which is so central? 
this they say. Whether it happened that way or not, I do not know. But if you think about it, you can see that it is true. And I made the statement, which I think is very much worth remembering. Therefore, a story could be both true and false at the same time. It could be false as history and true as a symbolic narrative. It's, it's to me, very, very easy and simple to see a story as both true and false at the same time. The quarrel that I have is with people who say, no, it's only true, it's only valuable if it's literally true. A mere symbol, I don't want any mere symbols, I want literal, literal facts. Um, yes? I'm just, um, this may not be exactly related to what you're talking about, but I'm thinking, like in the Theravada tradition, um, you know, these accounts of Ipaman, her supernormal powers, and Ajahn Mahabhua, and sort of what could be seen as sort of challenging our perceptions of reality. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't know if this kind of falls in line with mm -hmm. miracle and miracle stories. Mm -hmm. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go. Uh, I did deal with that issue in this other paper I'm working on. Um, I've got a whole section on history and miracles. Um, people challenge me, saying I've had, I've had this challenge many times that um, their counter to me is often to claim that many of the things we take for granted now, such as wireless transmission of speech and documents across great distances or air travel, are magical and would have been, surely have been seen as miraculous by those who lived in earlier times because they seemed so impossible. So why not the standard Buddhist miracles, such as flying through space on one's own power, which is one that Tibetans really like, uh, walking through walls, uh, milking painted cows, <laughs> or one of the most famous Tibetan miracle stories, the story of how Milarepa, yeah, that's Milarepa, was able to take shelter in a yak's horn during a storm without himself becoming smaller or the yak's horn becoming bigger. How do you do that? While his disciple, Ray Chungpa, who had not yet developed such city or supernatural power, got drenched in the rain. Tibetans love that story. I would reply to their question in several ways. First of all, the technological marvels dependent on the paradigm shift that occurred during the European Enlightenment work, not by contravening physics and natural law, but by working carefully within their perimeters. At present, things like walking through walls or milking a painted cow could only be contradictions of what we understand of natural law to date. Therefore, I neither affirm nor deny such stories, but take a reflexive, a flexible rather, a flexible, curious mind about them. Maybe, show me, perhaps someday. What would it take to convince me that such events occur? repeated public demonstrations of such events, such as happens whenever I use email or board an airplane. But my friends, this is where the, your question really comes in. My friends would probably reply that it takes advanced spiritual development to be able to perform city, to have magical powers. 
that some people can do extraordinary, unbelievable things is a claim made by many religious traditions. And I think it is wiser to maintain an open mind regarding such claims than to adamantly deny that they could happen. And that, I think, is always that, you know, that Buddhists don't know. Um, because we are Westerners, we are so inclined to go to one extreme or the other, and we find it very hard to actually stay in the middle without a strong opinion. Because I do not believe in rebirth, most people assume that I deny rebirth. They can't get it that I don't know. I, ha I just don't know which I think is much more Buddhist than either the dogma that there is rebirth or a dogma that there isn't rebirth. And I would say the same thing about, um, about these kinds of, of, of things. I think it is wiser to maintain an open mind regarding such claims than to adamantly deny that they could happen. However, I teach my students to be equally open-minded to the possibility that such stories could be merely fabrications, either way. Given how many seemingly magical feats have become common, I try to teach my students that a curious, questioning mind is more in accord with basic Buddhist values than either believing in such miracles in the absence of any evidence or adamantly denying their possibility on the basis of present knowledge. Given how many seemingly magical feats have become common within our lifetimes, who knows in what other ways we will learn to use physics and natural law to perform miracles in the future. Uh, I think it is possible that some people somehow have an intuitive grasp of how to do things that do not contravene natural law, but we don't have the same kind of intuitive grasp. And this is, uh, this is the final paragraph on that point. But I also claim that it is foolhardy to adamantly affirm the veracity of such claims on the basis of hearsay reports of their occurrence, no matter how prestigious the source of the hearsay. And until such feats are publicly verifiable, they remain hearsay. That they are hearsay makes them supremely inadequate for demonstrating the truth claims of Buddhism. I would never attempt, this is going to be interesting to you, I would never attempt to convince others to become Buddhists because I have seen it rain out of a clear blue sky at the most auspicious moment of a major Buddhist ceremony. And I, you know, I have seen quote unquote miracles. But I would never use those, those are very personal, private stories. Other people at the same event might not have noticed anything. So don't use those kinds of things to, to you know, if I want to talk to, about the cogency of Buddhism, I don't say, well, I saw it rain out of a clear blue sky at a major Buddhist ceremony. I start talking about the Four Noble Truths. So that's something anybody can grasp. They don't have to believe in my report, because for them, it's hearsay. Oh, Rita Gross said she saw such and such. Well, that's hearsay. It doesn't prove what we want to prove. And then um, I did say in the next few paragraphs on this particular topic that I don't think the enlightened masters who are writing today are going to use miracle stories to 
you know, prove the cogency of emptiness. They're not going to clinch the argument with the story about a painted cow and milking a painted cow because this is, isn't the time and the place when those kinds of stories are cogent or make sense. Um, and I think you people in the Theravada tradition have less, you know, fewer miracle <coughs> issues to worry about than the Mahayanists do. The Mahayanists have a lot of them to deal with. So anyway, I want to talk about, you know, things change. We can explain the change using Prakitya Samutpada, using interdependence, looking for the causes and conditions. We don't have to drag in supernatural interventions into historical processes to explain any kind of change within Buddhism. I don't think we need to have supernatural explanations for the birth of the Buddha, um, what happened at his enlightenment. There are fun stories to tell. I love to tell the stories, but um, they're stories. Then to move on, we're now almost out of time, to move on to the fifth point, uh, the fifth and final point, which is where traditional Buddha Dharma, historical, very last page, where traditional Buddha Dharma and historical consciousness find their deepest consonants. For historians, the present consensus about historical development is a hypothesis subject to revision as new information and perspectives become available. In other words, historians are, or at least should be, eminently flexible and willing to change their conclusions in the light of new evidence. Flexibility of mind rather than rigidity is also regarded as a supreme virtue for meditators. Thus, both historical consciousness and Buddha Dharma stress the importance of being comfortable with an open-ended, unfinished version of how things are. Both recognize that true confidence lies in being comfortable with process rather than needing a fixed final conclusion. Attaining this flexible, non-ideological, non-fixated state of mind, what Zen practitioners might call beginner's mind, is the whole point of meditation practice. And then this final paragraph, um, somebody quoted this on a Facebook, and I don't do Facebook, but I got sent this anyway. Somebody quoted this in a Facebook entry, and it's been getting a fair amount of play on Facebook right now. Um, what I want to do to conclude in the last couple of minutes is just um, read from the end of this other paper I'm working on. I wish we had had time. I've got a whole section in here on Mount Meru and traditional ways of talking about Mount Meru. And I think I mentioned this last week. In when when Protestant when Christian missionaries were trying to missionize uh, Southeast Asia, um, Asia in general, one of their big arguments was that the traditional Buddhist cosmology was Mount Meru at the center was clearly not accurate. And they would argue that Buddha, since, you, since your, your scriptures are wrong, there is no Mount Meru, it's never been found, you should give up Buddhism and become Christians. This is how dangerous it is to get hooked on literalism. Because I'm sure there were any number of Buddhists who said, yeah, I guess you're right.
teaching people the difference between history and story, which means demonstrating that some beloved stories simply are not history, is not an easy task. That such stories are not history does nothing to rob them of their meaning and value, but it is very hard to get empirically oriented post-enlightenment Western Buddhists to get that point. I regret this because no one loves a good story more than me, and I love to tell sacred stories from the great traditions. But if I have to watch people to see if they are taking the story literally, that spoils some of the fun. If one takes stories literally, confusing them with historical empirical events, all the whimsy, humor, and playfulness of the story is lost, and it becomes completely wooden. Spoiled in every way because it is not good history, and it is no longer a good story either. So please let us not confuse and conflate story and history. Um, also so that we don't become fundamentalists. So um, we could take a few minutes for a few concluding comments, questions, if they are. But it's 8.30, and I'm going to want to get on the road soon. That went fast, didn't it? Yes? I said if you have the book or if you want to take a look at this book, Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree, it's a Theravada presentation of emptiness. And I think isn't there a good first chapter? I'm wondering if somebody in the group is willing to scan the first chapter, send it to me, I'll send it off to the whole group. If I don't if you haven't received the email about this class, that means you're not on the email list for the class, send me an email, I'll get you on that list. And you can also Get, I'll resend the link to the article we talked about today in case there are a few people in the class who have So you're talking about this first chapter? If you yeah, want to take a look at it and see which one it is, you'd want to. I've used this book to good effect in, in teaching Mahayanists that their notion that Theravadans only know about egolessness of self but not egolessness of phenomena is completely wrong. It's one of the big things Mahayana say that we're the only ones who know about twofold egolessness. I think it's okay if uh, the first section actually, which has three chapters, is 21 pages. That isn't very much. Yeah, so it's the, it's the hard Buddhism. So. Well, the, the, the narratives surrounding the Enlightenment event are definitely miracle stories that, um, you know, that Mara sent all these arrows and they turned into flowers and the earth goddess springing out of the earth and washing away the armies of Mara with her the water she wrung out of her hair. Those are all miracle stories. Um, they're, they're also you know, they're subject to a tremendous amount of very wise interpretation. Like aggression doesn't work. The arrows, you know, a person who is truly Steadfast, you can't hurt them with with aggression. The the hard words just bounce back off them. Many many ways to understand all of. And it's a great story. It's just a great story. You know, you see the portrayal of that in Little Buddha. It's quite interesting how that's portrayed. And you know, then then Canal Reeves sees his own reflection in the water, and that's the final the final thing he has to work through is his fascination with his own reflection. In other words, ego. I'm thinking like the 
Well, I mean, the fact that um, meditation definitely improves people is, I think, quite evident. Uh, I don't know much about the research. That's, there's a lot of research going on in Madison, Wisconsin right now on you know, the actual brain physiology of meditation. I don't know much about it. But they do say that, the, that advanced meditators, that it does change their brains. Yes. Having brought up Madison, 1981, I attended the Kellogg Chocolate Initiation. In Madison? Yes. Yeah, I was there too. Oh. And, and if you remember, we were under a white tent. Uh-huh. And a storm arose, but it did not diminish. It did, it, it did not pour down. It just as if it passed through. Well, that, that happens lots of times with storms. Well, but it seems like a miracle when the timing. Right. See, it's the it's the timing of things coming together that that seems like, you know, everybody's so hyped up at a ceremony like this. Exactly. You know, I have seen it any number of times in the Rocky Mountains. I have seen it rain just when the teacher was saying the most amazing Dharma things. <laughs> it happens all the time. And then afterwards, there's a big rainbow. <laughs> and it happens all the time. It's neither the, the storm was not caused by the teacher. The storm is not a response. It, it's just storms in the Rocky Mountains in the afternoon. But when things happen together, they can move a person. So it seems like a miracle. But that's a subjective experience. And it's meaningless to somebody else. Right, and that's my point. Yeah. It's just a beautiful experience. It's a beautiful experience, a wonderful coincidence, but it doesn't prove anything. It's just a wonderful event. And if you didn't, um, you know, if you didn't experience it, then you, I mean, a very good, very good example of that for myself is um, at Lotus Garden, even, in the afternoon, right after the afternoon teachings finish, one year, um, it would every every day. I'd come outside right after the teachers. There'd be light rain, and I said to three different people. I mentioned to three different people. Oh, isn't this? It's it's this because rain is considered a sign of auspiciousness in Tibetan Buddhism. It's like if it rains, that's good. Um, I said to a number of different people, oh, isn't this auspicious that it's raining just as the teacher? Very light rain, so you didn't get wet. It was, it was a hot day. It was very refreshing. One person said to me, um, it rains every day about this time. That was her response. My roommate said, oh, I didn't even notice that it was raining. I said to her, you're funny. You're always looking for miracles. <laughs> She looked at me and said, yeah, and you're always seeing them, even though you don't believe in them. <laughs> so I think that's a good note to end on. Thank you, Rita. Have a safe drive home. People would like to support Rita's livelihood, you can leave a donation in the donation bowl in the lobby to support Rita so she continues to do her uh, practice and her research and her writing, sharing and her teachings. Um, there's a sitting going on until 9 o'clock in the community room, so when we leave this room, 
we need to use very quiet whisper voices. You can sit here and talk if you want to connect with people for a few minutes. That's fine. Um, is there anybody willing to, uh, who has a copy of this book or could uh, borrow my copy and scan the first 21 pages and send it to me? That would be great. You can see me right afterward. And uh, if you need to give us your email so you can be on the email list for this group, you can also send me an email or give me a piece of paper with your email. Any other announcements for the group? Okay, so next week at 7 o'clock, next Tuesday. Yeah, 7 to 8.30 is much better for me. Thank you. Thank you, Rita. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.